As Todd said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's an honor and privilege to be with you uh, this morning to bring God's Word to us. Uh, We are continuing in our sermon series entitled The Good Life. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We will be in this series for two more weeks, this week and next week, and then we will be shifting to look at the Lord's Prayer. Um, As is our custom, though, if you are able, I want to invite you to stand as we give honor and reverence to God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 38 through 48. This is God's Word. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if we love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. And God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word that as we spend time in this book, we would encounter you, the living God. And as we encounter you, that we would be transformed. That we would leave this place different than the way we came. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A couple weeks ago, my family had the privilege of attending a going-away party for some friends at Highwire Brewing Company. And when we arrived at the party, the parking lot was slammed. But I was so excited when I noticed there was this one primo parking spot right in the front of the building. The spot was tight, but I was convinced that my minivan could fit inside there between the white lines. And we slid in there, and my wife and I were able to successfully unload the four kids. Everything was going well and celebrating my wonderful parking place. And then everything turned sour on the way out. We had a great time at the party. We were leaving, and as we walked out, I noticed that the people next to us were leaving as well. It was a young couple with their 
first child, a small child, and they also are kind of having trouble loading their little one into this tight little parking space. But as I looked over, I noticed something strange, something that didn't make sense. It was the look on the dad's face. It wasn't pretty. And it took me a little while to realize what was going on, but I soon realized that he was very upset with me for parking so close to his car. I noted his agitation, and I reflected on how it was hard to be a first-time parent and navigating a small child, and so I let it go. But it wasn't until I got in the driver's seat that I fully understood the, the weightiness of the situation, because as I looked through my windshield, I couldn't help but notice a huge splatter of spit staring back at me. And so I immediately turned to the dad, not believing that this could have actually happened, but he was able to convince me with his eyes that that saliva did in fact come from his mouth. And so my insides began to boil. I was so upset but trying to hold it together because of the little ones flanking me on either side. But I was upset because this was, this was just wrong. Uh, the response was inappropriate. Uh, and in response to this injustice, my feelings immediately moved from anger to a desire for retribution. I wanted to make this man pay. And so I began to brainstorm how I could make this man pay. Unfortunately, I was not going to be able to exact punishment with my fists. Uh, this man spent a lot of time in the gym. So since my fists were no good, I began to think of alternative ways to make him pay. Maybe I could shame him in front of all these people for his ridiculous actions. Or I could call the police and, and I could file an incident re report and maybe he'd lose his driver's license or, or better yet, his child. <laughs> or maybe last resort, I could just accidentally back my minivan over his foot or something like that. Obviously, those are abs absurd responses, but in the moment, they all seem viable. And now, two weeks later, clearly by God's providence, we come to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, and here we find Jesus' guide for how we are to respond when we are wronged. It's a crash course, if you will, on what to do when someone spits on your car. And once again, Jesus begins his lesson with this famous line. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say. And as Daniel mentioned already, the point that Jesus is making is that there is a standard that has been set by the world around us, a mode of operation that is widely accepted by society. And Jesus says, then there's my standard my mode of operation that I desire for you to live by, and the two are not the same. In fact, they're often worlds apart. So this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at Jesus' standard for how to respond when someone does us wrong. And once again, we will see that the life that Jesus is calling us to live, the good life, as we've been calling it, is profoundly different than the life that most people are living there's two things that Jesus wants us to take away from this text. First is, what is our response to one who is evil? And then second, how do we respond this way? 
what is our response and then how do we in turn respond this way so let's begin much like he has done in the previous four sections Jesus begins by stating the status quo the way in which society is prone to respond in this case to evil and this response to evil is probably familiar to most if not all of us when someone does you wrong the appropriate response is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth seems fair right which is what makes this text so hard because probably more than any other statement that we've engaged with in the Sermon on the Mount this statement is most widely accepted we all believe that it's okay to retaliate as long as we do it within reason our retaliation should fit the crime but Jesus says he boldly declares I say the good life involves a categorically different response to evil look at verse 39 he says contrary to what the world says I charge you not to resist the one who is evil to not resist excuse me to not resist the one who is evil what does that mean the Greek word that Jesus uses here is translated do not resist it's a legal term though it most literally means do not take to court and the point that Jesus is making here is that when you are wrong, although you have certain rights, you have the right to retaliate, you don't have to exercise those rights. You don't have to make the person who wronged you suffer. Jesus is saying we have the opportunity to instead leave the eye in place and the tooth intact. Now before we dive in, I want to make a couple of general comments about what Jesus is not saying by encouraging us not to resist Jesus is in no way arguing for you to continue to allow abuse to take place in your life in fact we consistently see the opposite from Jesus he's always advocating for the abused always advocating for those who cannot advocate for themselves at the same time, neither is Jesus arguing here that we should ignore systemic injustice. No doubt the story of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple is clear evidence that Jesus is not against fighting the broken systems that are around us. But if Jesus is, is, is not talking about ignoring abuse or systemic injustice, what is he talking about? Thankfully, Jesus gives us three different case studies to look at he he gives us three examples of of someone doing us wrong and then he tells us how we are to respond so let's look at these now one at a time the first of these case studies centers around a slap to the face now I realize you are probably saying wait a minute pastor you just said this is not about abuse and it isn't I promise but the reason that we miss this is because we lack the appropriate context you see in the ancient Near East and in some parts of the world still today a slap to the cheek is not seen as a violent crime but rather as a major insult what Jesus is referring to here is when someone would, would smack someone across the face with the back of their hand and the point of this gesture in the ancient Near East was not to cause pain but rather to cause shame the closest parallel in our culture would be to spit in someone's face. And so 
before I go any further, I again want to make sure that I'm being crystal clear. Jesus is absolutely not saying if someone hits you, if someone is causing physical harm to you, that the Christian response is to allow that person to continue doing so. If someone is causing you physical harm, you need to get help. You need to inform someone so that you can be safe. But what Jesus is talking about here is when someone throws shade at you. You didn't think I was that cool. When someone drags your name through the mud. In Jesus' time, when someone did such a thing, when someone smacked you at the back of their hand, they were, you were entitled to take that person to court. And the fine for such an act exceeded the average man's annual wages. This was a huge infraction. And Jesus' point here is that although this is a really big deal and you have the right to retaliate, to take this person to court, don't do it. He's calling us to absorb the insult, to swallow our pride, and give up our right to retaliation. When was the last time your reputation was tarnished? Maybe it was through social media. Maybe an ugly rumor was spread around about you. The world that we live in says that the appropriate response, even the necessary response, is to fight back, to slap back to tarnish the name of the offender in return. I found myself in this situation not too long ago on my neighborhood listserv. I was trying to sell some tickets to a show. I was actually trying to sell them at face value. And yet someone on the listserv called to question my character in front of the whole group, basically called me a liar and accused me of trying to gouge the neighborhood. And I wish I could say that I turned the other cheek. But in my anger, I acted in accord with what I felt like were my rights. And as eloquently as I possibly could, I made this person look silly on the listserv. Later, I ended up apologizing for what I said, but what I was amazed by is how many people reached out to me directly and told me that they felt like what I did was perfectly okay that I was well within my rights to slander this person all over the internet. But it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like this good life that Jesus was calling us to is calling us to. The call here is regardless of whether or not the slap is justified, regardless of whether or not what is said about you is true or not, to respond in love. The second case study centers around coats and underwear. Jesus says if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Once again, we need a little bit of context to understand what is going on here. The tunic is your underwear. And the cloak was this outer garment that was worn on top of the tunic. The tunic was dispensable. The cloak was not. If you went without your cloak, you might freeze to death. It was dangerous to be cloakless. And yet, Jesus is referencing here a lawsuit that happens. When someone sues you, and they sue you for the shirt off your back. In, in our society, we would call this taking someone to the cleaners, where you go after everything they've got. And we all can agree and acknowledge that that's wrong. But Jesus is saying when someone comes at you with an over-the-top response, 
instead of saying, wait a minute, that's not fair, demanding that my rights be honored and valued, Jesus calls us to go over the top with generosity, to respond by giving our cloak instead. The third and final case study has to do with our response to evil authority. Once again, Jesus makes a statement that that makes little sense without cultural context. The reality is that the Roman army occupied Palestine and had the right in this day and age to force people to assist them in their work. The most famous example that you may or may not be aware of is the example of Simon the Cyrene being forced to carry the cross of Jesus by the Roman centurions. You can only imagine how this practice was abused time and time again, where these guards uh, abused the people that were under their authority. And yet, the government set some boundaries in place to help protect the people. A thousand paces, or as it says in our text, one mile, was the maximum allowable distance that one could be required to carry something. And yet, Jesus is saying here that although you have rights, that you have the right to hold these guards accountable, that they can only ask you to go a thousand paces, he is saying that you are called to, you are challenged to double in response, to go a thousand more anyway. The truth is all of us have been taken advantage of by some sort of authority figure at some point in our lives, amen? Whether it be a boss or a teacher, heaven forbid, a pastor. And we feel like when someone has the right to ask us of something, but they abuse it, it, it's oppressive, it's offensive, it's embarrassing. And no doubt this is what the Jews felt over and over again when the, the guards would require them to do work. And yet Jesus says, instead of responding by doing the bare minimum, by doing it begrudgingly, blow them away by doing double what has been asked for you. Can you imagine how your boss would respond if when he or she made that request that is totally inappropriate, instead of complaining, you respond by going above and beyond what was asked of you? That's this unheard of good life that Jesus is talking about. Now, if Jesus stopped right here with these three examples, we would all probably feel a little overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed even talking about it. To respond in those ways seems rather daunting. And yet Jesus is not finished yet. After painting this picture of what it looks like to respond to evil in our life, he then goes one step further by calling us to love that person who has inflicted the evil upon us. We're called to move towards them in love. Listen, verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is where we begin to cry, Uncle. Come on, Jesus. I might be able to muster up the strength to not respond to that jerk who's treated badly, but to love them and to pray for them, that's too much. That's too far. The truth is, very few of us ever get to this point. As St. Augustine once said, 
Many have learned to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. It's a whole other ballgame to love the person who has struck you on the cheek. And prayer, I love that Jesus mentions prayer because it's such a helpful measuring stick because it reveals the true nature of our hearts. You see, even in my surface niceties, the truth is, deep down, I want that person who hurt me to fail, to suffer. That's what my heart says. And yet when we are praying for someone, we are pleading with God for the exact opposite. God, would you bless this person who I so desperately want to fail? Would you comfort this person I so desperately want to suffer? How in the world do we get to that place? Help me, Jesus. And yet, church, the fact that Jesus commands us to live this way shows should give us hope. Because it means that on some level, he believes that we can. Amen? That by the power of his spirit, we can embody this way of life, the good life. And our text shows us how. Look again with me at verse 45. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It seems impossible, overwhelming. But then he follows that by saying, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And when Jesus makes this statement, when he references our adoption, our sonship, our minds should immediately go to a different text. And that's the parable of the prodigal son. And that parable most clearly portrays that our sonship is no way based on our merit, that we are not the golden child, that we are not chosen by God because we are so wonderful, so lovely, so beautiful. But we are the child that is running away from God, that is wasting his wealth, that is spitting in his face, and he is chasing after us with his love. He is pursuing us to be a part of his family, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us just the same. God had the right to retaliate. Amen? He, he had the right to give us what we deserve. He could have punished us for the wrong that we have committed to him, but he responded instead in love. And what a beautiful picture we have in Christ. The one whom we have offended comes and gives his life for us. No better picture of turning the other cheek of giving the shirt off your back, of going the extra mile than Jesus Christ. And I hope that you can now see that the strength for us to respond to the evil against us comes from being gripped by the way in which God has responded to the evil in us. As John Stott once said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to first see it as something done by us. This is why we do confession each and every week, because the truth is we can't grasp God's love for us until we grasp how truly undeserving we really are. Let me make this plain for you. My only hope in responding well to the spit on my windshield is for me to empathize with the spitter. I have to truly see myself as no better than him as equally deserving of God's wrath, as one who has spit in my Heavenly Father's face over and over and over again. Do you see yourself that way? 
Do you see yourself as one who's profoundly undeserving of God's love and yet covered in it just the same? Because if you do, you will find that you will be less and less inclined to embrace an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and more and more compelled to respond in love. Jesus ends this section with a question that he wants all of us to answer. He says, For he, God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The whole point of this section is to force the follower of Christ to examine his or her life, to see if there is anything different there than those who don't know Christ. And he makes this very simple. The examination is very easy to do. The question is, do you simply love those who are going to love you back? Do you simply move towards those who have promised to do the same in return? And he presses this on us with this provocative statement. He says, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Again, we miss the context here, but the tax collectors were the scum of the earth. Jesus might as well have been saying, do not the Nazis do the same? There's nothing to boast about in loving those who love us back and moving towards those who promise to do likewise. But he's calling us to something more. And so the question he's asking me and he's asking you is, what more are you doing than others? And that's the question that I want you to take home with you today. What more are you doing than others? Unfortunately, the more Christians are, are not known for, the more that we are known for is not often very good. Amen? The more that people see in the lives of Christians is often judgmental, hypocritical, arrogance. But what if we were seen as those who are more loving? And this love was most clearly seen by the way we respond when people treat us badly, the way we respond to our enemies. Do you believe that the gospel has the power to change you in that way from the inside out? I know sometimes it's hard to see in your own life, but I want to challenge you this week to ask those in your life who are close to you, do you see something more in me? I'm going to do the same thing. And if I'm honest, I'm kind of scared of what people might say. But I need to know. I want to know. Because I truly believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in me and in you. And he is making us more like Jesus. And I want to see the ways that I'm failing to live into the truth of the gospel. So I want people to show me that. Would you join me as we journey on hungering and thirsting for righteousness? I don't think it's a coincidence that we come to this text just a week after we were once again devastated by the news of not one but two mass shootings. And I know we all hurt from a distance, but I cannot fathom what the family and friends of the victims are going through right now. And I think we, we rightly ask, Jesus, where's the case study for that? How in the world do we respond to evil such as this? And I found the answer, not in the Bible, but in an 
Amish community in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Some of you may have heard this story, but back in 2006, a man walked into an Amish schoolhouse and shot and killed 10 little girls. And I want you to listen to the response of the community to this tragedy. This is what a reporter said. He said, in the midst of their grief over this shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. They didn't hold a press conference with attorneys at their side. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. The afternoon of the shooting, the grandfather of one of the girls who was killed publicly expressed forgiveness toward the killer. The same day, Amish neighbors visited the family of the killer to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. Not only that, but at the funeral of the killer, the Amish mourners actually outnumbered the friends and family of the killer two to one. How can this be? Clearly, this was a community who was deeply gripped by how much they had been forgiven and therefore profoundly and supernaturally empowered to do the same. Right now, I imagine many of us are thinking about some of the wrongs that have been done to us, some of the people that are constantly out to get you. Church, what if we were so gripped by God's movement towards us, in spite of how undeserving we are, that we began to see those moments as opportunities to portray Christ by responding in love. As one commentator rightly said, nowhere is the challenge of the Sermon on the Mount greater, nowhere is the distinctness of the Christian counterculture more obvious, and nowhere is our need of the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. Church, I truly believe by the power of the Spirit, we can do something more. And I promise you, if we do, God will get the glory and Durham will not be the same. Would you pray with me? Father God, this, this text is so hard. It's so hard to respond to evil in love. To love our enemies and pray for them. Father, I confess I can't do it. It's impossible. But God, I pray that the reality of the ways in which you have done that to and for us would so grip our hearts and our lives that we would be empowered by you to live the same. God, would you allow us to see moments when we are wronged as opportunities, opportunities to show love and thereby portray the beauty of of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.